All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you for the call you have on our lives to live by faith. Thank you that at times that does mean uh, stepping into unknown territory, uh, taking a jump that we've never taken before. Uh, but Father, thank you that you, uh, you don't really call us to do it blindfolded. You don't uh, trick us like these uh, jokesters in the video, but you, you do indeed challenge us. So teach us about that challenge today. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. All right, open your Bibles to two places. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 11. You should already be there. Hebrews chapter 11. Put a marker there. We're going to be back to Hebrews chapter 11. But also go to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Put a bulletin or put a marker there and you, you will be ready to go because we're going to cover a lot of Scripture today. You know, with friends like that, who needs enemies, you know, that uh, blindfold the old guy and they say, we're going to walk you to the edge of a building and we're going to bungee jump or off a bridge, wherever it was, and all of a sudden, boom, on the mattress. You know, but when I thought about that uh, little comical intro to our series on faith, it, it made me think about real bungee jumping, which I must confess I have never done. How many of you have ever bungee jumped? Raise your hand. Bungee jumpers? One? Is that it? Who, anyone else? There's a few more. How many of you want to bungee jump? Raise your hand. Okay, if it's free. If I offered it for free, how many of you would do it? Raise your hand. Okay, now, now here's a question for you. Why? <laughs> My brother lives um, near Summersville, West Virginia. And uh, I grew up there. Summersville, West Virginia is best known for a river that flows about 20 miles outside of the city, town. That river is the New River Gorge. The New River in West Virginia is uh, one of the top rafting rivers in the eastern part of the U.S. So you've got to picture this mountainous area and this, this New River Gorge flowing through. But if you drive across Highway 39 on that uh, through Summersville, you come to the edge of that river and you got to cross it and you cross it across the New River Gorge on a bridge that is the highest single span bridge in the U.S. It is way, way up there. No pillars underneath, one big single arch to support it, which means it's bungee jumper heaven. People often were go, they would go there and they would, they would try to bungee jump off the bridge and, and it got dangerous. A few people got killed because it didn't work and this and that. They would parachute off this bridge. It's so high. So a few years ago, they decided to make it more legal, make it more safe. So they actually produce a thing now every summer, about this time, in fact. I think it's the first week of August. They have a thing called Bridge Day. And on Bridge Day or Bridge Day weekend... They actually closed down, this is a four-lane bridge, and they closed down two of the lanes, reduced the traffic to two lanes. They turned the other two lanes into a big carnival on the bridge, and at the heart of the carnival is where you go to bungee jump off the New River Bridge, down over the gorge, nothing but a flowing rafting stream below. It's about a 1,000 feet up. Now... I ask, why? <laughs> I mean, it's exhilarating for those who do it. You can go online and watch some of it. But 
when you decide to bungee jump off the New River Bridge, off that bridge, over the gorge, you are exercising faith, right? What are you putting your faith in when you do that? Talk to me. The, the bungee? Yeah, you're putting your faith in that bungee, that it's not going to break, it's going it's to support you. What else are you putting your faith in? The knots that are tied in the bungee. Is that it? Yeah. What else? What? Oh, the harness. Yeah, okay, the harness that's holding you. Yeah, because bungee may work, harness bad, you're in trouble. So your harness, your bungee, the equipment, you're trusting it'll do what's promised. What else? Your heart. Yeah, maybe the bungees work, but your heart explodes. That's what would happen with me. Yeah, you're trusting the designer of the thing. Yeah, what else? Yeah, the men who prep the gear. Because, you know, the bungee may be a great bungee. The harness is a great harness. And they do the calculation. And they go, wow, we're, you know, we're like 995 feet up. And, uh, and they just eh, leave you with a little too much bungee. So if they, if they, if they leave it too long, what happens? Yeah, not a pretty scene. So you're putting your faith in that equipment, in the people. You're putting your faith in the organization that's, that's doing it. And, 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 you, and you have to believe that it's going to do what's promised. Now, today, some of you in this room would like to jump off the New River Bridge on a bungee. Not many, maybe, but a few of you would. Because you have faith in those things. Now, let's go back in time a little bit. Let's go back 20, 30, 40 years ago, whenever it was. And let's pretend that you are talking to your friend and your friend lives near the New River Gorge. And they say, you know something? I got this idea that I've never seen anybody do before. But, you know, we've been using these bungees to strap stuff on the luggage on the car. And and I got an idea. What if we just tied enough bungees together? I think we could jump off the New River Gorge bridge and it would just bounce us back up and it would be an incredible thrill. Let's go do it. How many of you want in? See, why? Why all of a sudden do you change your mind? Well, you go back in time and you say, wait a minute, this sounds wacky. This sounds, I don't, I, no one's, has anyone ever done this? Have we, do we have evidence that this works? Has it been tested out? And when the answer to that is no, 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 and your buddy says, but jump anyway, just trust me. That's a big challenge. Sometimes we feel like God and walking with God, following Christ, is like that. At times you say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? Oh, I want you to do this. Has anybody done it before? Oh, yeah, it's been done over the years, many, many times. No problem. Okay, God, I'll do it. But what if God asks you to do something that you've never done before? And to make it even tougher... What if God was asking you to do something that as far as you know in human history, it's never been done before? Would you have enough faith in God to say, I'll jump? That's the story we're going to look at today. I call it faith when you don't understand. Some steps of faith are still big steps of faith, but I know, well, other people do it all the time. I can do it too. They trust God. I can trust God. And you've got some evidence, but what if 
you don't really understand. God, why are you asking me to do it this way? God, why do you want me to do this? God, why do you want me to, to do this or that? You know, then it's a huge, I think a bigger challenge to really trust God when you don't understand, but when his message is clear. Open your Bibles. Here we go. We're going to study a guy that did just that. His name is Noah. Noah. Listen to the short version in Hebrews 11, then we'll give you the back story. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 11. Pick it up in verse 6, which sets it up. It says, and without faith, without faith it is impossible to please God. So there you go. If you don't learn how to walk with God by faith, then it says it's impossible to please Him. He wants us to trust Him. Without faith it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that He is... And doesn't have an adjective. Must believe that he is. In other words, he must believe that he exists. Must believe that he's real. Must believe that he's true. He's really there. But not only is he there, must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. In other words, those who step out, follow him, he not only is there, but he will deliver on his promises. And you've got to believe that, that he rewards your faith by delivering on his promises. So that's kind of the essence of Noah's life. And that's all that Hebrews 11, chapter, uh, Hebrews 11 tells us. But then it applies it to Noah. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen. We're going to study this story in a minute. We're going to see Noah had to trust God in spite of the fact he had never seen a lot of things that we're going to see in this story. Um, we're going to, he had to trust God about things not yet seen in reverence, underline that, he prepared an ark for the salvation of his family by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. That our righteousness before God has nothing to do with what we do, has nothing to do with whether we build an ark or not. It's the righteousness that comes by simply trusting God. But the evidence of his trust was radical, bold, even though he didn't understand obedience. And that's what we're going to study. So let's look at it, okay? Let's go back and look at the story first. It's a great story. So leave Hebrews 11, put a marker there, go back with me to Genesis chapter 6. Now, I don't have time to go through the whole story in Genesis 6 through 9, but if you read it this week with me, you're going to see some incredible truths about Noah and his faith. But before we talk about his faith, I want to talk about his life and especially this thing called the flood and the ark. Turn your Bibles and here we go. Let's talk about the times of Noah first. The times of Noah in the story are typified by this summary verse. Chapter 6, verse 3. Just mark it with a star if you've got your Bible open. Chapter 6, 3 says this. Uh, he says, My spirit will not put up with or strive with man forever. And he goes on to say in verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. The Lord was sorry that he had made man. He was grieved in his heart that he had created him. And he said, I will blot out man whom I have created. That's verse 7. It goes on to say in verse 8 that Noah, however, stood out as different. Noah, in verse 8 of chapter 6, it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man. And, in fact, Noah was so incredible that we've asked for music to kind of back up his the drama are you picking that up okay here we go that's all right it happens you know it happens to me all the time okay but noah 
found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. He was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Man. So Noah's a righteous guy. He's walking with God. He's a man of faith. So God reveals to Noah a plan. And it begins in chapter 6, verse 13. And basically in chapter 6, verse 13 to 22, here are some of the highlights. He says in verse 13, look at it. Then then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, that is, because of people. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. He tells them the type of wood to use. You shall make the ark with rooms. It shall, you shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark is going to be 300 cubits by a breadth of 50 cubits, by the height of 30 cubits, in which time Noah said to God, God, time out. What's a cubit? <laughs> Actually, Noah would have known what a cubit is. But in the ancient world, a cubit was a typical area uh, type of measurement it was estimated to be the from the tip of your elbow to the tip of your finger so it was about 18 inches give or take and it was a common unit of measurement so we're talking about about a huge huge ship we'll tell you how big in a little bit but noah would have said god what's a cubit why says you shall make you shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top. He tells them exactly how to do it. Put the window 18 inches from the top because this thing is going to ride deep and long. Set the door of the ark in the side of it and you shall make it with a lower, a second, and a third deck. Behold, I, even I, am bringing a flood upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which there is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you, your family. And of every living thing on the earth, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be a male and a female. That's a good tip. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, they shall be a male and a female. And of the birds after their kind and animals after their kind and every creeping thing upon the ground after its kind. And by the way, the phrase after its kind means after its species. Two of every kind or every species shall come to you. I'm going to bring them to you. You don't go out and gather them. This is how we're going to pull this off. I'm going to bring them to you. You keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all the food which is edible. Gather it to yourself and it shall be for food for you and for all. Thus Noah did according to all the Lord had commanded him to do. Then chapter 7 describes what happens next. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and female. Now it's interesting. Here's a trivia question. People ask you, how many animals, how many of each type of type of animal did did God bring and put on the ark? Answer, two. Answer, wrong. Two of every animal except the clean animals. What's a clean animal in the Old Testament? Anybody know? It's a sacrificial animal. It's an animal that's deemed suitable to sacrifice to God as an act of worship. 
And uh, that included things like doves and lambs and other and bulls. And so of the clean animals, the ones sacrificed in worship, you better bring seven. Why is that? Yeah, because if you're going to do a sacrifice to God in worship, you just wiped out a species if you only got two of them, right? So the idea is two are kept alive of every type, but there's seven of the clean animals. So there's your trivia question. How many animals went on the ark? Well, it depends. Okay, two of most, but seven of some. And we'll see how he uses that later. So the bottom line is you fast forward. Let me just kind of give you the highlights of what happens next. <clears throat> so Noah builds the ark. Now, how long did it take Noah to build the ark? Scripture says that it took about 120 years. So he's working on this project for 120 years. Remember, people in this period of time live long lives, all right? Really long lives. And, and, and for 120 years, he's building the ark. Now, for 120 years, he's also preaching what I would call the gospel to people. He's declaring to people what's coming. He's warning people of the fact that because of the sinfulness of man, you need to repent and put your faith in God because a flood is coming to wipe everything out and you've got 120 years to get ready for it. And he's preaching with one hand. It's almost like you picture him with a Bible in one hand. Not that he had a literal Bible, but you know, maybe an iPad Bible. But you know, he has his iPad in one hand if he's a modern day Noah and he's got a hammer in the other and the guy is constructing this big boat exactly to the specifications that God tells him to. But he's also preaching. First Peter chapter 3 says, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. The guy is called a missionary. But he's a missionary ark builder at the same time. Not for one year, not for ten years, for 120 years. And we'll see why in a minute. And then God says, enter. So here's the highlights. Noah enters the ark, and God says, now Wait. So he enters the ark, loads it with the animals, pulls the door up. Now that's usually in the movie version where you see the water kind of coming in the distance just as he whoa, boom, barely closes the door. Not true, okay? In the biblical version, he closes himself up on the ark and for seven days, nothing happens. So imagine this. I mean, people have been making fun of this guy for 120 years. He's the nutcase who's building an ark. What's an ark? No one's ever seen a thing like that. Why are you building it? Well, it's because it's going to flood. What's a flood? Because they would have never seen a flood. And you know why? It's because they say, well, but it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And they would have said, what's rain? Because when you study the Old Testament, and I don't have time to take you to all the passages, but in the Old Testament it says that in Genesis 2 it says that the, the earth was watered by a mist that came up from the ground, kind of like a heavy dew, and, and, and there may have been light rain, but because of the atmosphere that was created by God in the original creation, there was no heavy rain. There were no floods. And there were no boats or arks. But Noah just says, you know, God, if you tell me to do this, I'll do it. I'll show you why there was no rain in a little bit. But the bottom line is this. Noah enters. He waits seven days. Door shut. Everybody's laughing at him. Everybody's ridiculing him. Noah the fool. And then it begins to rain. Forty days of heavy rain. The flood lasts for 150 days. Forty days and nights of steady rain. After about 150 days of the water rising, then 
and uh, being flooded. It says it takes about another 150 days for the water to begin to recede and return to the earth and recede. Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. If you want to write the references down, read the story this week. It's fascinating. But you add these up. And then the earth, it says it took 70 days for the earth to dry. And then Noah exited. And the first thing he did was he built an altar and he offered sacrifices of worship to his God for preserving him and his family. And, and uh, can you imagine this? So he offers sacrifice to God. And Genesis chapter 8 says, the aroma of the sacrifices rose up to God and were pleasing to him with a pleasing aroma. And Noah then uh, finishes the episode. Total of 377 days in the ark if you do the math. Most scholars would say a little bit over a year from start to finish. So this is not a real quick little whoop, flood, boat, whoop, whoop, water down, get off the boat, let's go. This is, a, this, is a, this is a slow process at the end of 120 years of preaching to people, telling them what's coming, and then finally mounting the ark, loading the ark for about a one-year process. Now one of the questions before we talk about the application of Noah to our lives is I want to just pause for a little bit to answer some obvious questions in the room. Because some of you are thinking, you know, Dale, this is a great little story, but this is kind of like a biblical fairy tale, right? I mean, this didn't really happen. Uh, the reality is, I believe it really did. Was this myth or history? Let's talk about that a little bit. Again, there are whole books on this, but let me give you the highlights. Number one, I believe it because it's the testimony of Scripture that it's history, and it's written and recorded in historical language. Uh, the Bible, when it wants to tell a parable or a metaphor or, a, or, a, or a, a story to prove a spiritual point or a moral lesson, then there's markers in how that is told to identify it. When Jesus uses his parables, you can tell it. When, when, uh, when the scriptures use poetic or metaphorical language, you can tell it. This story is told as history. All the history, all the language is history. Even Hebrews 11.2, to go back to our Hebrews passage, says that the following people found favor with God. They gained approval for God because they did these things as they walked by faith. These are men of faith. And every other person in Hebrews 11 is an historical character. You're talking Abraham and Sarah and Enoch and Joshua. and You're talking all these real people in real time. There's no evidence in Scripture whatever that Noah wasn't a real person who really did this. Jesus testified to the reality of Noah in Luke 17. I'll give you this one verse on the screen. Here we go. In Luke 17, Jesus said this, But just as it happened in the days of Noah so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. Now, Jesus is discussing the days in which He will return to earth at the end of time to put an end to evil and to save His people. He says, just as it was in Noah's day, they were eating, they were drinking, they were getting married, they were being given in marriage. In other words, they were just living their life until the day that Noah entered the ark and then the flood came and destroyed them all. In other words, they were too busy just doing life, enjoying life, to pay attention to God's Word and His warnings. And Jesus says that's how it's going to be in the final days of humanity. They're, they're, going, to be, they're going to be ignoring Me and ignoring My warnings. 
and then the end will come. This time, not by water, but by fire. That's another whole story. But Jesus clearly looks to Noah and his day as history. Number three, the testimony of various cultures worldwide beyond Christianity would validate the concept because almost every world civilization, ancient civilization, has a story built into it of some type of a, of a global catastrophic event and flood. It's a common story in every culture. Why would almost every culture have such a story? And these stories often predate the writing even of Old Testament Scripture. So this stories it's a global it's a global reality that cultures around the world believe this. So, so just pay attention to the reality that even history backs it up. Number two, a second question is, yeah, but was this really even feasible or is it just fiction? Well, to answer that, I've got to look at two or three quick issues. Number one is, where in the world do you get this much water? Where does that come from? Well, number one is this. God is the creator of the universe. So if God wants to create rain, guess what? That's a fairly low-grade process. If God creates us and he wants to create more rain, more water, number one is God could snap it into existence and answer this question. But there is some geological evidence that might help us answer this. One is there is good evidence, pretty well accepted scientifically, that this planet used to have a global um, tropical climate. Uh, There's evidence of of fossilized tropical plant life, for example, uh, even under the ice caps, okay? So uh, around the world, there's evidence of a global climate. What would cause a global climate? A lot of people believe that this world, when created by God, was very different. And in fact, the book of Genesis describes it. It's amazing. The Bible says in Genesis 1-7, and God made, created the expanse. Now, what's he talking about there? Later, he's going to say this. Let the birds fly above the earth in the expanse of the heavens. So the expanse is the area where the birds fly. Got it? And now, now, with that knowledge, go back and read it again. And God made the expanse, the atmosphere in which the birds fly, and he separated the waters that were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, there was morning, the second day of creation. So whatever you believe about creation, the the reality is, God says, I created planet Earth with a lot of water below where the birds fly and a a lot of water above it. Scientists have speculated, for example, that if you have a approximately, say, 200 foot thick uh, cloud vapor, a water vapor canopy around the earth, it would create a global tropical climate. It has what they call a greenhouse effect, of creating a greenhouse effect of the earth that equalizes temperature and blocks out the sun's radiation and and uh, and it creates more of a global climate. It's been estimated by some that it would probably average around 90 degrees temperature globally. It would also raise uh, the uh, atmospheric pressure to about 96 pounds of pressure instead of what it is today, which, did I write that down? What is it today, Steve? You know this. 18, 19? Anyway, I'll check that. I think it's 18 to 19. Dave, you don't know that? I'm looking to my smartest guys in the room and they're letting me down. Here we go. Yeah. But the atmospheric pressure would go, would go way up. That's the point. But yet, not, not, it's not unlivable. Um, 
for example, some surgery today is done under similar atmospheric pressure whenever it's helpful for healing. So, you, you know, we have no trouble living with that type of atmospheric pressure. Um, so it would create a very different climate, though. But it also puts a ton of water up in the atmosphere. Now, what might bring that water down? Here we go. Number two is a catastrophic event, which the Bible describes this way. It says, let the fountains of the great deep burst open. This is Genesis 7:11. And the floodgates of the sky were opened and the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So what Genesis uh, 7:11 in the flood story is describing is not just the, the rain from above, it's called the fountains of the great deep erupt, undoubtedly involving massive changes to the earth's crust, massive volcanic eruptions globally, massive eruptions of subterranean water globally, for example. So if this is happening, what happens? What happens when you throw volcanic ash up in the atmosphere? Answer, it cools it. And when it cools the atmosphere, what would happen if suddenly you cooled the atmosphere globally with massive destructive volcanic ash? What would happen to the these massive amount of water in the sky? It begins to fall. It begins to fall. So, you know, exactly how this happens, I'm not going to say that I'm, I've got the scientific explanation. You can debate that if you want to, but the point is, you don't have to be a fool to believe the Bible. You don't have to turn off your brain and be an anti-intellectual to believe the Scriptures. Now, there are some that believe that maybe the flood is describing a more localized flood instead of a global flood. I personally lean toward the global flood theory because of the language. The language, to me, I can't escape from. But, you know, you can study it on your own, determine what you wish. But the bottom line is it says God wiped out life in a global catastrophic event. Is there evidence of this event happening? Well, yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of geological evidence of it as well. So the source of the water is there. Uh, you've got the geological evidence that it happened, things like evidence of a global greenhouse effect, uh, they find layers of volcanic ash if you go down eight to 10,000 years ago in the ice caps, for example. Uh, if you look at the continental shelf, for example, the continental shelf is about, I think it's about the upper 500 feet of water on the planet. And the continental shelf, if you study it, uh, especially, for example, there's, there's areas. One example would be when the Hudson River comes down through New York and continues through the continental shelf, it, the, the fossilized ancient riverbed is still kind of there. You can tell where it was until it gets to the edge of the continental shelf. There's a lot of evidence that the continental shelf was not covered inch by inch by inch through the slow rising of the ocean, or else you would have beach erosion marks fossilized in all the rock structures. Got that? Instead, what you find is you find a lot of evidence in the continental shelf that however it was covered, it was covered quickly and catastrophically. Hmm, kind of sounds like a never-seen-before-unheard-of flood. So the reality is um, God's Word is true, and we can trust it. Would such an ark actually preserve life? Well, it's huge. I mean, if you look at the size of it, if you translate cubits into feet, you know, it's 450 feet long, it is... 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, built with three different decks. 
How big is this in terms that you can understand? Well, it's like 21 plus million half gallons of ice cream. If it was filled with gasoline, even with a gas-guzzling car making 20 miles per hour, not a, per hour, not a Prius. We know Noah didn't drive a Prius. Um, that was a joke. That just went right over you. Noah didn't drive at all. Okay. But, you know, if he's driving my gas guzzler, he's going 217 million miles or about 8,000 plus times around the earth. Better yet, it holds about 554 train cars of space. Some scientists have speculated that um, there's about, given, give or take a few, maybe about 20, um, about 20,000 different species of animals, not, kind, not individual uh, animals, but species that could reproduce and repopulate. And, and uh, one person speculated that it would take about 73 boxcars to represent all of those. Because, you know, a lot of those are very, very small. But however you want to represent this, the bottom line is, yeah, this boat could do the job. It could do the job. And then on top of that, most important of all, this was a God event. So you have the supernatural presence of God through all of this. So you can debate the science till you're blue in the face. But as soon as God says, I will do this, you got a God factor. And that's by the fourth thing I would say. This is the, the God factor. The supernatural God factor is true in this story. No matter how God did it, the Word of God says this is how He destroyed humanity. So what do we learn from Noah and his faith? Uh, I want to just give you very short statements that I hope you can take and pray over this week. And if you do the encounters with God that we email out, you'll actually review these six statements. Here they are. Number one, Hebrews 11. Look at the words of Hebrews 11.7. It said that he had a reverence for God. Noah's faith feared God reverently. He had a healthy respect for God. When God spoke, Noah listened. That's why Scripture says, without faith it's impossible to please God because you've got to believe that God is, period. And that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him, who follow Him. So He had a healthy, respectful fear of God. There's nothing wrong with that. You can believe that God is a God of love and grace, but He still deserves our respect. Don't ever lose that. Proverbs says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. God will judge you someday. He will judge me someday. And I thank you that my grace, His grace, secures my salvation. But I still need to have a heck of a lot of respect for the God who is my judge. Number two, Noah modeled that his faith listened seriously, taking God's warnings to heart. When God warns us of something, he paid attention. Number three, Noah's faith obeyed carefully. It obeys carefully even when it does not understand. Exactly what is God doing? Exactly how is he, he going to pull this off? There's a lot of stuff in this story that tells me that Noah could not have understood exactly what God was up to. Like I say, God, what's an ark? Okay, give me the directions, I'll follow it. God, what's rain? Never seen heavy enough rain to cause this kind of flooding. God, what is a flood? God, when are you going to do this? And then God has him do it. 
God has him work 120 years doing it. He gets him on board and he says, okay, God, I'm here, let's go. And for seven days, nothing happens. And does Noah get off the ark? No. He just said, God, you give the direction, I will follow. I think if you take one thing away from this sermon, it's this. When God says, live this way, do marriage this way, raise kids this way, go to work and work this way, be my witness this way, uh, use your money this way, um, you know, invest in eternal things, whatever God is telling you to do, man, listen carefully and obey carefully. And at times, God's going to ask us to do things, and you say, God, but would you explain it first? God's going to say, nope, you trust me. You trust me. Number four, faith stands courageously even when having to deliver God's message. I love this cross-reference in 1 Peter 3.20. It says this, When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. And then it says in 2 Peter 2.5, If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. And then verse 9 says, Then God knows how to rescue the ungodly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And what Peter's saying is just like it was true in Noah's day, it's true in our day. You know, God was patiently waiting for people to repent. So he made Noah not just the builder of the ark, the preacher of righteousness. He was declaring to people, come, put your faith in God, repent of your sin, follow Christ. Follow God. He wasn't saying follow Christ, but he was calling people to faith in God that they might be righteous. He was a preacher of the message of righteousness. In our language today, he was a preacher of the gospel. He was declaring to people, hey, look, God is real. Sin is serious. God's going to judge it. So come, follow Him. And in Noah's time, it was come, you better build an ark. Today we say come, you better come to the cross. You better put your faith in Christ because you need the ark of salvation that will save you from judgment. That's not a popular message today, even in churches. But it is the message we're called to deliver. It's the message Noah delivered. I love the fact that he didn't build the ark in 10 days or a month or six months. It, you know, God said, take 120 years to build it because at the same time, you're preaching righteousness to people. But they're refusing to change. And then God judged, brought His judgment. So I love the fact that He stood courageously even when people would not believe. Number five, faith waits patiently even if ridiculed. It's tough to wait. 120 years. And people aren't responding. And then finally, a point we don't have time to go into in depth, but if you read the rest of the story through chapter 9 this week, Noah hangs tight with his faith. He walks with God. He obeys God. And then in chapter 9, we get surprised with this statement. Here it is. The statement is that Noah's faith falters. 
It's a reminder that even when we feel like, yeah, I'm kind of, tr- I'm doing well, I'm trusting God by faith, I'm following God, even when I don't understand, like Noah did. What happened to Noah when all of his enemies were wiped out, and he was big dog on planet Earth, and he began to remultiply and replenish the Earth? The good times are coming, prosperity comes, and we read this. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard, drank the wine, became drunk, uncovered himself inside his tent, got naked, and committed some shameful sin. Noah, the man of faith who stood against all the opposition, once the opposition was gone and life was sweet and good and rich and prosperous, he he let his guard down and he fell into sin and it, it was not a pretty finish to Noah's life. So this guy didn't finish well. So it's a great reminder that, you know, when we live in times of prosperity and blessing from God, man, don't think that yesterday's faith is going to stick with you. I heard one man say that if Satan wanted to destroy the church, he would just make it rich. And then it'll destroy itself because it no longer needs God. So we need in the midst of blessing to remember, don't make Noah's final mistake. So here's the challenge this week. When God says, live this way, be my people, be my witness, sacrifice for me, give generously, care for the poor, get involved in this, that, whatever it is, even if you don't understand, let's be Noah. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for the encouragement of your word to trust you even when we don't understand everything you're doing. And Father, thank you for your grace that we live under now. Thank you for Christ. Uh, Thank you that it was the grace of God provided by Jesus Christ that reached back and saved Noah and his family. Not because they did something for God, but because they trusted God, put their faith in God. And that faith was demonstrated, put on display with radical obedience. May we be radically obedient people, willing to live out your life and live out your word. That's my prayer, Father, for me. I need that. May that be true for all of us. In Christ's name. And Father, as we give now in worship, man, may our giving even reflect uh, our faith. We give to you now in Christ's name. Amen.